Well, sometimes you're a prisoner to an outline, and sometimes you don't provide one. Yes, that'll be today. So the best way to hear this word is to follow along with these slides as I uh, speak what God put on my heart for us. And this is called the long, hard road to the promised land. Perseverance and overcoming as a part of our way of life. And this lion imagery comes to us from Genesis 49, 9, and 10. Judah is a lion's whelp or cub. From the prey, my son, you have gone up. He couches. He lies down like a lion. And as a lion, who dares to rouse him up? The scepter shall not depart from Judah, nor the ruler's staff from between his feet, until Shiloh comes, and to him shall be the obedience of the peoples. Our inspiration is the Lion of Judah. In a series of images, Judah is likened to a fierce lion that has seized its prey, returned to its den, and there lies daring anyone to challenge it. Historically, the military successes of King David from the tribe of Judah, may be seen as the fulfillment of this blessing, which also gave rise to the messianic title, Lion of Judah. And all at least agree that this line about Shiloh is predicting the rise of the Davidic monarchy and the establishment of the Israelite empire, if not the coming of a greater David, which is what we hold. And that greater David is Yeshua. And if the primary reference is to David, traditional Jewish and Christian exegetes, people who draw the meaning out of Scripture would agree that like other Davidic promises, it has greater fulfillment in Messiah Yeshua. We're talking about the lion-like persevering and overcoming with Davidic army-like strength. The one who takes on the lion-like Davidic heritage, the one who appropriates it, could be called an Ish Chayil or an Eshet Chayil, which is translated man of valor or woman of valor. We see the woman of valor in Proverbs chapter 31, verse 10. And you read that whole section and you see, what is a woman of valor? And you see a man of valor in 2 Samuel 24.2, it's actually the Sar Ha-Chayil. It's the commander of the what? The army. So at its root, across languages of the period, across languages of the period, the word Chayil could be translated army. So what is a man or woman of Chayil? A person whose state of being is characterized by army-like strength, courage, and the fortitude necessary to boldly face whatever comes their way. Now, we grow into such a person, right? Let no one think that disaster befalls us on Saturday, and on Sunday, we're the consummate ish or eshet chayil. No, we grow into this. When uh, Rabbi Shaul said that he learned how to be Messiah sufficient, no matter what his circumstances, lacking everything or having more than he needed. He said, I learned how to be 
Messiah sufficient. And the word for learn there means learn by experience, meaning this kind of learning requires us to go through the hard, difficult situations, the hardship and the sufferings. So this little diagram represents everything from the baby cub who might be crawling up in the fetal position when hardship comes all the way to the lion that will vociferously handle what comes. Appropriating, taking on our lion-like Davidic heritage is the preventive safeguard against anemic living. Do you remember when Joel Willis was here for the Kingship of God uh, visiting Scholar Symposium and he raised the issue that the fact that we lost sight of in our heritage, Davidic kingship, that it's not a meaningful part of our everyday life, leads to anemic living. What is anemia? Anemia is a condition in which a person does not have enough red blood cells to carry adequate oxygen to the body's tissues, and serious anemia leads to serious weakness. What is anemic living in our analogy Anemia refers to our inability to persevere and overcome. And don't misunderstand the word overcome. We'll see it in some context. But there are things that will happen to us that we won't survive. One of them will be physical illness. Some of us will die. It doesn't mean we failed. It doesn't mean we weren't a victor. It doesn't mean we didn't overcome. But in order for there to be resurrection, there has to be death. And so with every death the world sees, it is through hardship and suffering that we get to the promised land. Costly, precious in the sight of Adonai is the death of his holy ones. Appropriating our lion-like Davidic heritage is the preventive safeguard against anemic living. That's the second time I've said it. Get the picture? This remind you of anyone? I saw Terry Zeller here today. This immediately reminded me of him. Or maybe your son now, I hear. It doesn't mean we're Superman and Superwoman, but it does mean we have access to superpower to get through whatever hardship it is that we are facing. I'm reminded now of Howard's series in Genesis and the story and example of Jacob and Joseph. Can you imagine what Jacob himself had to go through for God to build him and the rest of Israel into Israel, Thomas Torrance, the theologian, says the scriptures were hammered out on the anvil of Israel. We must go to school with Israel. We must suffer with Israel. It took a lot for God to take a person from the Goyim, Abraham, and build his people Israel. They went through a lot of hardship and suffering, and it continues to this day. And what about when he lost Joseph? When his brothers sell him off into slavery in Egypt. And dad has to live for years thinking he's gone. And it's a lie. And Joseph finds himself where? In slavery, in Egypt. But look what he does with it. Howard emphasized the point that Jacob must have developed and nurtured a practice of faithfulness such that when Potiphar's wife tempted him, it was a no-brainer. No to her, I can't do this thing to who? The one I'm in covenant relationship with. That's not the only area we need to develop and cultivate a practice of. Another one is perseverance and overcoming. 
It has to be practiced. And look what happened to Joseph. Appropriating, making it our own, the lion-like Davidic heritage enables us to persevere through and overcome what? The hardship and suffering that comes in life, whether by design of God or someone else's, sin, randomness, randomness. Random things happen. Beware of the theology that says everything happens for a purpose. The tower fell over on the people. It was an accident. There was no foreseeing that. God did not push it over. Be careful of such erroneous theology. And especially we're talking about suffering and hardship associated with being the people of God and Messiah. Israel has a long history of it. It's called anti-Semitism. It's really the hatred of God underneath it all. It's really chaos, rejecting God's order, as we'll see. Perseverance and overcoming are a necessary part of our way of life in order to properly respond to hardship and suffering. Our way of life is known as the Derek Adonai. It's lit up in Hebrew. I have chosen Avraham so that he may instruct his children and his household after him to what? To keep and observe the what? The way of the Lord. By how? Doing righteousness and justice. Doing what's right and just in covenant relation. There's an overarching guarantee that in doing righteousness and justice, hardship and suffering you will have with you always. What kinds of hardship and suffering? What about physical illness or conditions? We pray for them every Shabbat. What about economic hardship? What about hardship or suffering from sin? What about random hardship or suffering? Like the two leaks in the roof right now. And then most importantly, hardship or suffering for being associated with God and or Messiah. Two cautions. Beware of the U.S. expectation for a hardship-free, suffering-free, pain-free life. Beware of the health, wealth, and easy living false good news. Those who are truly in the way of the Lord, the Derek Adonai, do not share the U.S. expectations for a hardship-free, suffering-free, pain-free life, and they reject all false forms of the good news. And then how do we respond to hardship and suffering? We'll see through Job how we should accept it, how we should go through it. And whether or not we have the outcome of Job, that's another story. But then how should we respond to the hardship or suffering of others? Do we have enough information to know why they're going through it? What if it's due to sin and God is judging them? What if it's pruning God's doing in the person's life? We must have enough, enough information. We cannot just rebuke it. We cannot just assume it's hasatan. There's a lot of things we can't assume. We must tread gently. Sometimes I, I have found in the suffering course using this decibel levels example speaks to how I think we should respond. Sometimes it's inaudible. You can't hear the sound. I use that as the analogy of sometime you just need to be with the person who's in the hardship and suffering and not say a word, but your presence with them in the suffering or the hardship, like God's, 
will get them through it. Sometimes you need to whisper something. Sometimes you need to pray for them. Like the person that said to me this morning, I'm praying for your situation and for MSI. You know what you caused to happen to me? You made the lion rise up in me. And then maybe we need to get louder. I have no problem with that skill. Maybe we need to get louder. Maybe at one point, there needs to be a rebuke of someone by someone, but make sure you have enough information or you can make the situation what? Worse. Yeah. And should we compare sufferings? My goodness, this is the most dangerous place we tread. We must be very careful that what we say does not reduce the person's suffering that is going through it. On the one hand, if you ran out of coffee ice cream at your house and you think that's a hardship, you have a big problem. On the other hand, you shouldn't say to someone, well, at least your kid's not dying of cancer. You see my point? We must tread lightly. Comparing sufferings is really on the person. My wife of 41 years has the liberty to say to me, Henry, the leaks in the roof aren't as bad as pancreatic cancer. She gets away with that. Why? She knows enough that I'll be able to handle that example. But we have to tread lightly because we don't know where someone is in the process of coping with hardship and suffering. And it ranges from curling up in the fetal position to a ferocious lion that says, I will overcome this if it's the last thing I do. There's a theme in scripture it is so poorly or untaught on. It's the whole idea of order versus chaos. It emerges in Genesis 1. It runs all the way through to the book of Revelation. We're going to have a peek at it. Understand that God's creative activity, for the most part, was all about ordering the universe. And you'll see from text that he told the ocean, thus far you can go. And the ocean was a symbol in antiquity of chaos which means God in his ordering allowed chaos to remain. It is not wiped out with the red arrow until we enter the Olam Haba, which means chaos is going to fight against order for the rest of our lives until Messiah reappears. The big picture scholarly Jewish perspective on this topic comes from John Levinson in his book called Creation and the Persistence of Evil, one of the hardest books you'll ever read but you'll walk away with some of the most satisfying answers on this topic you can imagine. He shows how chaos works against benevolent and life-sustaining order that God created. He shows how chaos serves God's purposes. And he shows that chaos is linked to the ancient combat myth, which we're going to talk about. The combat myth is one of the oldest and enduring myths possibly appearing as early as the 18th century BCE, but it reappears in the book of Revelation in 100 AD. Think about that time. Strongly used in later apocalyptic literature, including Daniel and Revelation. The word myth, when we say combat myth, means a story used as a hidden explanation of real things. A famous example 
of such a myth, story, used for other purposes in our own times would be C.S. Lewis's 1950, The Lion, the Witch, and the Wardrobe, made into a fantastic movie not long ago from the Seven Chronicles of Narnia. Did you know there were seven chronicles? Did you know that seven was the number of cosmic order and later perfection, and that's why seven? And in fact, that's why all of Genesis 1 is ordered in sevens. We'll see that in Genesis, the big picture, term four. Here's four books I recommend everyone read on the combat myth. This will only take you about three and a half years to get through them. (laughs) Two ancient features of the early combat myth, chaos as the sea and sea monsters. And the historic Leviathan is represented in some texts as having seven heads. And what do you see in Revelation? Coming out of the sea, a beast with seven heads. All symbolism for the awful chaos being faced by those who love God and Messiah. I ask you to see Umberto Casuto on Genesis 1, 6, and 21 and see Rashi on Genesis 1, 21. In Rashi's commentary on Genesis 1, 21, he actually says that Leviathan had a female counterpart and God killed it so that chaos could not duplicate itself but be limited. And then they preserved it with salt, and we're going to eat it at the Messianic banquet of Isaiah. How many now like Rashi as a commentator even better? (laughs) Look at the passages that aren't just about water and ocean, but understand that Genesis in part is reacting to all of the counter stories being told by all of the nations. Now the earth was formless and empty. Darkness covered the surface of the watery depths. And the Spirit of God, the Ruach of God, was hovering over the surface of the waters. Then God said, let there be an expanse between the waters, separating water from water. Then God said, let the water under the sky be gathered into one place. And one of the parts of the combat myth was that water would not be contained into any place, but would flood everything. And so this, in part, is part of the counter-narrative saying, you want to tell a story of how the the universe works? We're going to tell the real story of how the universe works and who's in charge. And then you have the sea creatures here in 121, which is thought by some to be whales and such, but most commentators see behind it more reaction to the combat myth about the great sea creature, Leviathan. I think there's a profound lesson to be learned from natural revelation in the created order. And that is the fact that oceans cover 71% of the Earth's surface and contain 97% of the Earth's water. And the oceans contain 99% of the living space on planet Earth. These are statistics from the Hawaii Pacific University's Ocean Institute. Why share that here and now? Because I want to suggest that chaos dominates the world under God's sovereignty like ocean dominates the earth's surface and is meant for us to see it so we understand it by even what we look at geographically. And this domination of chaos allows humanity to reach its greatest good. Another book that will only take you a year to read, The Creative Suffering of God by Paul Fittis. This is the big picture from a scholarly Gentile perspective. Since human beings 
are always in the process of becoming what God intended them to be, chaos was allowed to exist in God's order because given the gift of free will, humanity only attains to its greatest good through the very high risk of suffering. We did a lot more with this in a suffering course, and that book is worthy of our time. It's one of the richest explanations. You see this carried out in everyday life in the world. Hardship, suffering, crisis, what does it do? Think of a big event like 9-11, when everybody is just being who they are every day. They hate each other. Red versus blue. Liberal versus conservative, Democrat versus Republican. All the works of the flesh from Galatians 5 that make people, it's impossible for them to get along because they polarize against each other. But now an act of terrorism, and all of a sudden every man is your brother, every woman is your sister, everyone's feeding everybody else, everyone's taking care, all humanity is swaying back and forth, singing together. What is that? That proves that a crisis gives you a momentary glimpse of what people will be like with each other in the Olam Haba, in the new creation, that brotherly, sisterly affection that pours itself out in love is without boundaries. But then when the crisis goes away, what happens without the Ruach of God, without being in the new covenant, without Yeshua the Messiah? Everyone goes back to their polarized opposition of each other. Chaos goes back to domination. This is a true saying from antiquity. We actually have a very eloquent version of it in Greek that says, I suffered, I learned. No pain, no gain. It's true. And Fittis' unfathomable conclusion, may we affirm, we may affirm, we may affirm God's own freedom by putting the situation like this. It is not that God must suffer, the world being what it is, but God has made the world as it is because he chooses to suffer with it. The biblical principle of God suffering with us, we sang about it, right? Lord of hosts, you're with us. In the fire, as a shelter, in the storm. It's not a series of platitudes. That's the reality. Here's the biblical confirmation, one of the richest. Blessed be the God and Father of our Lord, Yeshua Messiah, the Father of mercies and the God of all. He comforts us in all our affliction so that we may be able to comfort those who are in any kind of affliction through the comfort we ourselves receive from God. If there's hardship and suffering and you don't do serious business with God, you yourself will not be making it through it and you won't be able to provide comfort to anyone else in such a situation. So why is understanding the combat myth and the Bible's counter-narrative to it so important? Because some of the greatest sufferers among God's people relied on Israel's counter-narrative to the combat myth to evoke perseverance and overcoming. First, we have the example of Job. Can you relate to Job? Maybe not if you've never had hardship or suffering. This is 7, 11, and 12. 11 teaches us how to be brutally honest with God. I will not restrain my mouth. I will speak in the anguish of my spirit. I will complain in the bitterness of my soul. Isn't that beautiful? Don't pretend. How you doing today? Well, everyone was killed, but I'm blessed. I hate that fake 
false veneer of messianism. But notice he says, Job says, am I the sea or the sea monster? I.e., am I the sea or Leviathan that you set a guard over me? Why are you limiting me like you limit chaos? Can you draw out Leviathan with a fish hook or press down his tongue? In this passage, he shows how he is sovereign over Leviathan. So who is Job to question him? And then we got this incredible response of Adonai to Job in 38. Where were you when I laid the foundation of the earth? As you read the passage, notice when you get to verse 8, it's like this. Where were you when I enclosed the sea with doors? When bursting forth, it went out from the womb. When I made a cloud its garment and thick darkness its swaddling band. And I placed boundaries on it and set a bolt and doors on it and said to it, Thus far you will come and no farther. Here your proud waves will stop. That's not just oceans he's talking about. He's working with the combat myth. And he's showing that chaos has a limitation. There are many other examples of perseverance and overcoming of Job. How about his wife? A little conversation at home. The one piece of advice we never want to take in hardship and suffering is curse God and be done with it. Yes, you speak as one of the foolish women speaks. Shall we indeed accept good from God and not accept diversity? In all this, Job did not sin with his lips. How do you like that? You can be bold to God about, why is this happening? Job does that, but he never sinned with his lips. This, to me, compares the U.S.'s view to Job's view. The U.S. view, why me? Job's view, why not me? Naked I came from my mother's womb. Naked I shall return there. The Lord gave, the Lord has taken away. Blessed be the name of the Lord. That's not fake, because look, look at the whole, the whole book. Look at how he engages his hardship. Looking how he gets through it. And we'll see how it ends. You could get to the place where you say, I loathe my own life. You're suicidal. I will give full vent to my complaint. I will speak in the bitterness of my soul. It's like, I will say to God, don't condemn me. Let me know why you contend with me. I want to know why this is happening. That's healthy. Is it right for you indeed to oppress, to reject the labor of your hands, and to look favorably on the schemes of the wicked? He goes on and on and he says, Look at me, I'm not guilty of sin, so why don't you deliver me? It's genius. It's so helpful if we're in hardship and suffering to spend time in this book. At 19, he says, Behold, I cry violence, but I get no answer. I shout for help, but there's no justice. Who knows how many years Job had to tolerate this. There's a, there's a legend called the Testament of Job that gives a number of years that he went through this. What about his conclusion in that chapter, 19? I know my Redeemer lives, and at the end he will stand on dust. Even after my skin has been destroyed, yet I will see God in my flesh. I will see him myself. My eyes will look at him and not as a stranger. My heart longs within me. Isn't that a thing of beauty? So even if we end up dying of a fatal disease, we'll see God. And then you have this incredible reply in Job 42.1. I know that you can do anything and no plan of yours can be thwarted. Isn't that genius? And notice at the end, I mean, if you were Job and your friends did what his friends do, would, you, would the record book say about you that the last thing you did in the end 
was you prayed for your friends. That's what it says here. He prayed for his friends. And then, of course, verse 10 says, after he prayed for his friends, the Lord restored his fortunes and doubled his previous possessions. Now, although we're praying for that for MSI, it doesn't mean that's what's going to happen. And you don't know how many years you're going to be in the crucible that you are in. Conclusion regarding Job. Job's an excellent role model for how to persevere through and overcome hardship and suffering, even though the cause, in his case, Hasatan, and outcome of our hardship and suffering will likely be very different from Job's. A quick parenthesis to tell some personal stories. Marguerite and I traveled to the East Coast twice a year, every year when our children were growing up. And, and we would spend a week with one set of grandparents and a week with the other set of grandparents so that the grandparents knew the children. And we had a very close aunt, my Aunt Madeline, and we would visit her each time. And one, you know, she would, they would always say, you want to stay for dinner tonight? And sometimes, you know, you feel like, gee, you're in imposition, so you don't stay. But this time, she had a certain look in her eyes. It was like begging us to stay for dinner. So we did. We no sooner sat down. I'm talking about the fork was no sooner picked up. She said, can we talk during dinner? So of course we can talk. She goes, is it okay, Henry, to be angry with God? I said, what are you angry about? I'm angry about how things turned out. I'm angry that one of our kids had kids out of wedlock, and, and, and we're raising children that aren't our own, and we're old, and we're forced to raise these kids. I'm angry with God. Is that okay, Henry? What do you think I said? Yeah, I wasn't that dogmatic theologian that would rebuke that. I was as merciful as could be. I said, you know what? God loves a person like Job that what? Looks up and says, where's the justice? Why did our lives end up this way? He loves when you engage him in the real situation that you're going through. And so the whole rest of the dinner that night was spent talking about that situation. And oh my goodness, the back and forth and what came out of that. And what about Aunt Anne's lament? They had a child, and later they wanted to have a second child, and they couldn't, so they adopted. But this is decades ago. No information, no details in the paperwork. They didn't know the daughter was the baby of an alcoholic parent. And when that child reached puberty, something happened. They were diagnosed with partial personality disorder. They disappeared. They were with different people. They had children all over the place. And this is now the grandchildren. And then they would run out of money and flee a place, and the, the law would be after them. And, and they had to face that. So every time we visit Aunt Anne and Uncle Ed, we have to talk about what? How are they going to make it into the promised land? Because they're angry with God. And then what about a parent's lament? I know a couple whose daughter went off the deep end when she was a teenager. She actually left home as a teenager. It was so traumatic for the parents, they were curled up in the fetal position in their master bedroom, wailing like children the night she left. And they prayed, and they prayed, and they prayed. And they blamed themselves for what they did wrong in raising that child. They were wrong about that, but they, wouldn't admit, they would never accept that counsel from anyone that tried to give it. And it got so bad one year... They happened to be very well-to-do at the time, and the two teenage kids had different spring vacations. So the wife took the son and his friend to one area of Florida and came home, and the husband took the daughter and her friend to another area of Florida and then came home. But while the husband and the daughter and the friend were in Florida, he became suicidal because he blamed himself for his daughter's condition. And one day, 
He was there in a cabana on the beach he had rented for them, and they disappeared for four hours to get tattoos and left them there. And he had just recovered from surgery of the loss of his colon. You can't be on a beach for four hours getting dehydrated. And then they came back. And that night they went out again, and he went up to his hotel room on one of the highest floors of that hotel, and he went to the ledge, and he was picking his spot to fall off that balcony onto a piece of cement to end his life because he was so despondent about the condition of his daughter. And a force like a force field backed him off of that balcony into the chair that was on that balcony. And I said, let me guess, suicide is not in your plans for my life today. The couple is Henry and Marguerite, but look where Emily is now. There's no way to get through it easily. It was years. And we prayed hard. But look where it is today. And all is forgiven. Yes? You never know what someone is going through. What about the example of Israel in Psalm 74? It's genius. Psalm 74, 1 through 11 is a lament. We're going to look at the first verse of it. Psalm 74, 18 through 23 is an earnest plea to act. Scream to God. We'll look at the last two verses of that. But in the middle... 74, 12 through 17 is liturgical use of the combat myth. The worship use of the combat myth. 74, 1 through 11. A lament about the troubling, distressful situation that Israel is in. A situation which has made belief or trust in God's kingship almost impossible. And Howard, in January, is doing a mini course on the lament psalms. And on Wednesday night, he's doing a mini course on Hanukkah to show what part of that, Jeff will tell you all the things he's covering, but one thing that he'll cover is the historical Maccabean ferociousness to rise up against an empire that tried to wipe out the Jewish people. And what what does Hanukkah teach us about developing a biblical worldview? I recommend we all be there Wednesday night for that course. Psalm 74, 12 through 17 is a liturgical, poetic use of the combat myth, a celebration of God's past or primeval, a victorious action. And then we said the end of it, 18 through 23, is a plea for God to act again in the wondrous way he acted in the past. Acted in the past. Here's the verse, first verse of the opening lament. Why have you rejected us forever, God? Why does your anger burn against the sheep of your pasture? When will this be over? Here's 12. Here's the use of the combat myth right in the middle. God, my king, is from ancient times, performing saving acts on the earth. You divided the sea with your strength. You smashed the heads of the sea monsters in the water. You crushed the heads, plural of Leviathan. You fed him to the creatures of the desert. What event are they talking about here? Creation and the Exodus have been mixed together in this incredible rehearsal of a story. It's like us running to watch the movie, The Chronicles of Narnia, and getting all inspired to make it through into the promised land. Right in the middle of a psalm, they rehearse their counter-narrative to the combat myth. 
And it inspires them to what? Now say, rise up, God. Champion your cause. Remember the insults that fools bring against you all day long. Don't forget the clamor of your adversaries, the tumult of your opponents that goes up constantly. That's right. Chaos is active constantly. When will your kingship be exercised? You know what I think? You know that prayer we pray? When all you know, abominations are wiped off the earth. I think if you carefully read the text, you've got to want it. God's people have to want it for God to deliver it. The Olam isn't going to be coming when God's people are casual about it. You have to want chaos to have the red stripe across it. Conclusion regarding Psalm 74. It honestly and courageously draws attention to the painful and yawning gap between the liturgical affirmation of God's absolute sovereignty, which, thank the Lord, we do every Shabbat. We affirm it, because then we have to go live in the chaos. And the day-to-day factual reality of chaos, triumphant and seemingly unchecked. In Psalm 74, we find a jarring juxtaposition, a bringing together of the hymnic affirmation of God's world-ordering power and endless faithfulness, and the grim reality of historical experience. Such texts are designed to help the faithful follower of Adonai to keep their eye upon the inevitability of the defeat of chaos and hostile forces by the fact that God will exercise his kingship. And all of this is in John Levison's creation and the persistence of evil. What's our conclusion regarding the Psalms? and perseverance and overcoming. The Psalms reinforce the fact that God always intended the whole of himself would be engaged by the whole of his people. The Psalms reinforce the fact that God's presence is potentially available if you want it in absolutely every possible dimension of the nitty-gritty of our everyday life. This implies the fact that God suffers with his people. And what's our conclusion regarding the scriptures themselves and Psalms in particular as a part of scriptures and this whole issue of perseverance and overcoming? Whatever was written in earlier times, the Torah, the prophets, and the writings, which includes the Psalms, that's what he's referring to, was written for our instruction. So that through what? Perseverance and what? Encouragement of the scriptures. We may have what? Hope. Now may the God who gives perseverance and encouragement grant y'all to be of the same mindset with one another according to Messiah Yeshua. Then we come to the example of the seven messianic congregations in Asia Minor in the book of Revelation. The combat myth in eschatology, that is, last things. Ultimately, the use of the combat myth in eschatology, last things, is intended to represent a radical reversal of the present world order in which triumphant evil and chaos is overthrown by the God whom it seemed to have neutralized, or it's overthrown by his agent or agents. In the case of Revelation, it represents the ultimate final reversal 
of the present world order as expressed in the center point of the apocalypse known as the book of Revelation. The seventh angel, notice it's the seventh angel. Yeah, why? Seven is the number of cosmic order and perfection. It's like the Bible saying, tell your story, but our story trumps your story. The seventh angel blew his trumpet, and there were loud voices in heaven saying, the kingdom of the world has become the kingdom of our Lord and of his Messiah, and he will reign forever and ever. And I would suggest that the more fervently we say that when we do the closing liturgy, the more God wants to bring it to pass. Notice the seven-headed beast coming up out of the sea in Revelation 13, who ends up in the lake of fire. What a wonderful destiny for him. Yes. And notice that the sea no longer exists in Revelation 21.1, when the new creation of Isaiah 65 comes into being in the Olam Haba. Let me suggest that that's altogether saying chaos is finally finished. It no longer serves God's purposes. The sea is no more. The beginning of the perseverance theme in the book of Revelation. I have taught Revelation for more than a decade, and sometimes at seminary. And it's like verse 9 is not even seen given the U.S. worldview about the book of Revelation. So now we have an apocalypse. An apocalypse means to uncover our eyes to see what we don't currently see or what we've lost sight of. I, Yochanan, your brother, and the one who shares with you in the troubling distress, kingship, and perseverance that are in Yeshua. What three things does he share with them in troubling distress? That is the Greek word translated tribulation. I, John, the one who shares with you in tribulation, kingship and perseverance that are in Yeshua. If you're in Yeshua, you're guaranteed to be involved in at least these three things. Tribulation, kingship, and perseverance. And then it says where he was on the island. The overcoming theme in the book of Revelation is in all these passages. If you email me, I will send you a copy of this slide deck, and you can look at all those as a homework assignment. But we will look at some of the theme here about overcoming. And note that all seven real communities of Messiah followers in Asia Minor around 95 AD, all seven were given a version of this. To all seven, it said, to the one who has an ear, let that person hear what the Spirit is saying to the communities of Messiah followers. To have an ear to hear God's Spirit, right? Shema Yisrael. Hear, listen, obey. It's to obey what he tells you to do. If you haven't obeyed, you haven't heard. To the person who is characterized by overcoming, all seven say to the person who is characterized, like has a habit of overcoming. In this instance, this is Ephesus, I will grant to eat of the tree of life which is in the paradise of God. This one, 321, this is Laodicea. The person who is characterized by overcoming, I will grant to that person to sit down with me on my throne as I also, what? Overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. 
We overcome because we are in the consummate overcomer. The same warning applies. And now we come back to our lion. Revelation 5.5, Then one of the elders said to me, Stop weeping. Behold the lion that is from the tribe of Judah, the root of David, has overcome so as to open the book of its seven seals. The one who is characterized by overcoming will inherit these things. That's 22-7. And I will be that person's God and that person will be my child. I'm inclined to go out and bring up the first six verses of that passage. I didn't think we'd have time for this. Look, a miracle. We do. This is Bible Works, the software program. We'll go to Revelation. We'll go to 22. And look what we inherit. Then the angel showed me the river of water of life. Oh, the river of water of life flowing from the throne of God. (laughs) Recognize that imagery from a particular book that's been talked about here recently. In contrast to what? The uncontrolled waters of chaos. Brightest crystal flowing from the throne of God and the Lamb. This is all, can you top this language against what was going on in the world of the Roman Empire? Understand this about the letters about the book of Revelation written to these seven congregations. They wake up every day to an empire that is totally succeeding and totally oppressing them. And listen, the the community of Messiah followers is Jews as Jews and Gentiles as Gentiles. And their fellow Jews in the synagogue are rejecting them because the fellow Jews in the synagogue have worked out all their rights with the Roman Empire. So they've been hung out to dry by them. And if you're a Gentile... Your Gentile friends don't want to have anything to do with you because you're not busy worshiping Zeus. You're not busy following the ways of the Roman Empire. The crucible these seven communities were in in Asia Minor was unbelievable and they needed an apocalypse to open their eyes to what's really going on and which which king and kingdom will ultimately win as you go through the hardship and suffering where you are in Asia Minor. Through the middle of a street also on either side of the river, the tree of life with 12 kinds of fruit yielding its fruit each month. The leaves of the tree were for the healing of the nations. No longer will there be anything accursed, but the throne of God and the Lamb will be in it. His servants or his slaves more accurately will worship him. There's a course on that later in the year. They will see his face. We're talking about Edenic restoration to -to face-to-face relationship with God. And his name will be on their foreheads. Night will be no more. No more need of light, lamp, sun. For the Lord God will be their light and they will reign forever and ever. And he said to me, these words are trustworthy and true. And the Lord, the God of the spirits of the prophets, has sent his angel to show his servants what must soon take place. So that's what we inherit. Resurrection, life, and the new heaven, new earth forever. The one who is characterized by overcoming will inherit these things. We just read that. Closing words of perseverance and overcoming from the scriptures. Did this ever strike you? Have you ever really seen a good English translation of this verse? This is Yeshua speaking in Matthew 7.14 to his disciples. The gate is narrow and the way is what? Hard. The way is hard that leads to life. And there are few who 
find it. Unless we leave on an unencouraging word, we have 2 Peter 1.5. Now for this very reason also, employing all diligence in your faithfulness, supply virtue. And in your virtue, supply knowledge. And in your knowledge, supply self-control. And in your self-control, supply perseverance. And in your perseverance, supply devoutness. Some people, some people think I'm a very passionate, explosive person. It was mostly crucible that caused that. I'm not just an up and kind of happy guy. And in your devoutness, supply brotherly and sisterly affection. And in your brotherly and sisterly affection, supply love. So it's not just that God is with us in hardship and suffering, it's each other. We're with each other to get us through. It's a long, hard road to the promised land. Before we close, I have Howard's blessing to do this. I'm just going to say that another way to strengthen us, to persevere through the hardship and suffering, is to make sure we're registering for MSI courses. We have just seen a shooting in a synagogue and we're addressing the need to end Christian anti-Semitism, Christian anti-Judaism forever. And you saw that essay by that CUNY professor who said Christian anti-Semitism is ignorance of one's own faith. We can fix that in a course called The Jewish Roots. We do that so that the world understand it, understands it inside. We reject that language. <laughs> it's the heritage and essence and we were talking about appropriating the Davidic army-like, yes, tenacity of being a follower of God and Messiah. You have Hebrew 1 in a new format with Marcy, where you watch a video and then come to class. You have Deuteronomy 1, 2, and 3. A nice three-term series where you start out in chapters 1 through 12 and you learn what it means to love the Lord your God with the whole of your heart, the whole of your being, and the whole of your muchness. And you end up in the last term in a course that shows how Deuteronomy informed Paul's letters. And then you have Torah, the prophets, and the writings, three terms in a row. And we're calling that the bedrock of the scriptures. If you don't know Genesis, Exodus, Leviticus, Numbers, Deuteronomy, trust me, the rest of the scriptures are a mystery to you because it's all starting with the grounding in those five books. Howard's incredible course, Hanukkah, More Than a Holiday, toward a biblical worldview. And then in January, crying out to God in the lament psalms, grief, sorrow, and comfort, let us pray. So Avina Malkinu, our Father, our King, we come to you as Beth Messiah congregation and lay our hearts before you afresh. And we just accept like Job whatever it is that has come upon us that we see as delay of vision or hardship or suffering. And we ask you like Job, how come, why? See if there's any harmful way in us. Give us the answers that we seek and or especially give us perseverance, strength, Davidic-like, army-like strength to get through all of our situations together, showing mercy to one another so that we might end up on that hard road reaching the promised land. We ask in the name of Yeshua HaMashiach. Amen.